this is the Red Ticket Blues Podcast. I am Brian Buckley. This is being recorded on September 16th. They hit the internets on September 17th. How's everyone doing? Uh, today is a special podcast. Uh, if you're new to the show, you can always listen on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and you can follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 or at RedTicketBlues. And if you're not new to the show, then you already know that spiel. But today is a special podcast. I had a interview with Newsday sports media columnist Neil Best. Uh, it was a really pleasant experience. Uh, we talked about a lot of things. Talked about the industry, a little bit about his background, how the field has changed with social media, and we get into a little WFAN and just sports radio, uh, and how that's affected the way we look at sports. And how the way he also does his job, too. And for Mongo Nation people, obviously, we have to get into a little Mike Francesa as well. Uh, So I hope everyone enjoys it. So let's go for it. As promised, uh, we have Neil Best of Newsday, who works as a sports media columnist, also sort of a business columnist in the sports field. Neil, welcome to the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, before we even start, I, I want to ask you, have you heard of this Daily Fantasy League with FanDuel and DraftKings? I'm not sure if there's been any talk of it. I, mean, I did a tweet about this the other day, but I mean, I mean I'm mean, i 54, so I've been watching TV ads for almost half a century. I've never seen anything like this. It's just really unbelievable. And, you know, it's I mean, it's it's weird on multiple levels. One, the, obviously, just the magnitude of this stuff, but also just in the bigger picture, you know, the fact that for some bizarre legal reason, this is not considered gambling and just betting on, you know, the Giants minus six is considered gambling. So it's all part of a new world of, uh, you know, increasingly legalized gambling that will eventually lead to, I think, Giants minus six being legal in 50 states. It probably will. And if you, if anyone's missed it, Neil had a great column last week about the inundation of these 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 uh, these commercials just shoved down our throats ad nauseum. Uh, so I should urge everyone to check that out. So, Neil, that's present things going on. But in, in order to understand who you are, let, let's go back to just find out exactly what made Neil Best Neil Best. Now, I know you were born in New Jersey and you grew up on Long Island. So you're a New York guy. So with all those different things going on, did with all different sorts of avenues of employment and what we're going to do when we grow up, did you always want to work in sports media? Uh, if you would ask someone in high school or college to guess what I would do when I grew up, they probably would have guessed sports writer. But in my mind, it was never like that was not some dream job. It just became uh, since I had no other marketable skills, I, I sort of eventually drifted to it. So uh, not that I had anything against that path, but it it, it wasn't like to me like a, an automatic thing. But eventually, I guess logic won out. And that's where I ended up because I, you know, I was a sports fan and I was a decent writer and. Here we are, you know, 35 years later. <laughs> <laughs> so with that love of sports, I mean, was there a certain team or an athlete or an event that sort of flipped that switch and made that transition so easy for you? Well, in terms of the sports fandom, uh, what worked is being my particular age, I, grew, I I started paying attention at exactly the right moment in New York. My first memory of sports is watching the Mets sweep the Expos to go into first place for the first time in 1969. And then, of course, I do not remember Super Bowl three, actually. But, you know, the, the Mets thing in 69 and then obviously the Knicks. And, you know, so it was a uh, obviously a good time to be to start paying attention to sports in New York. So that was really when it started. Sixty nine Mets, 70 Knicks, you know, that whole kind of that whole era. And then obviously, 
you know, all the stuff in the 70s and 80s. By the, I, I'd say the last time I was a real sports fan instead of a impartial, cynical sports writer type was probably the 86 World Series where I did go as, as a fan to, well, to all the home games for the Mets. And, but since then, I think I've been more of a typical sports writer and I root for, um, you know, good stories and short games. <laughs> I can understand that completely. Um, so with, with now growing up, like you said, and be getting into the industry with all those things going on in the New York City area, uh, were there people actually in the industry, in the sports media industry that you looked at and said, wow, I'd like to be like them, or they really make me want to get into this field of work? Uh, I'd say, you know, I moved to Long Island in 1972 when I was 12, and, and really sort of, so sort of growing up as a teenager, it was all the Newsday guys that were my writing heroes, really. I mean, Joe Gergen, one of our columnists at the time, was a guy I admired, and, uh, you know, that whole crew of uh, people in sort of Newsdays, or, well, newspapers in general, glory days in the 70s and 80s, when there was a lot of money and a lot of space and good deadlines, and... Uh, those are the guys I really kind of grew up with. I wouldn't say my heroes necessarily, but certainly the guys I read and admired and, and thought, well, I, you know, that'd be kind of cool to do that. So, yeah, Joe Gergen in particular was, you know, he was with us for like 40 years till he retired a few years ago. So he wow. made him more than anybody. Yeah, it's that's 40 years. That's a long time. That is. Well, I'm getting there. I just yeah, I know you are. 30 years. 30th anniversary. There you go. <laughs> Uh, were there, was there anybody on like a national level, uh, and maybe not even in the sports writing field, I mean, just the sports media field, like someone like a Howard Cosell or well, things like that? Yeah, I was going to say Cosell comes to mind, not necessarily because you wanted to be like him, but he was the one, you know, in that era, he, yeah, he was one of those unavoidable people that everybody either loved or hated, but that you had to pay attention to. So, um, in terms of people on television in that era, he was a guy, again, like him or not, or a little of both, that you could not ignore. So, yeah, he was a memorable character from my childhood. How do you think Cosell would do in today's sports media? Uh, you know, on the one hand, he'd do well because he was so opinionated. He would be great on these sort of debate shows. On the other hand, I, you know, doing the games themselves, I, I really struck um, a few years ago, yes, had a, um, a little screening for us with Bobby Mercer of the game after Thurman Musson's funeral when when Mercer drives in the winning run. And what what I noticed afterward is as Mercer drives in the winning run, Cosell goes immediately on a long, flowery speech about the drama of it all. And today he would be killed for that because, you know, now the the theory is in a situation like that, the announcer lays out, lets the crowd and exactly. the pictures tell the story. And so there's a lot of things that used to go on on television uh, with a guy like Cosell, but others that in this era just would not fly. Uh, you know, people could talk about the glory days of sports TV of that era if they think it was, but the reality is the quality of, of the broadcasting and the picture, obviously the pictures, just about everything about it is better now than it was when I was a kid. I, I've seen that uh, replay. I'm a little younger. I'm 35 years old, but I've seen that same Yankeeography with the Bobby Mercer on the day they bury their captain. <laughs> I, know, I know. Can you imagine if somebody of like Joe Buck tried to do that now? He would be slaughtered. Uh, I mean, it just wouldn't work. It's just, but that was uh, it was a less sophisticated era of sports television, and also just a different style. I mean, at the time, I guess it seemed like it made sense, but now it wouldn't fly. So, making that excuse me, making that segue into the uh, you know the way the industry is today, uh, obviously things are different, and one of the largest things is the power of social media. So, 
in your opinion, how has Twitter and social media in general changed the sports media industry? I know that's a very broad question, but sure. what do you, what specific things do you think? Uh, I mean, it, you know, it, it's obviously changed it both for the better and for the worse. I mean, the better is obviously the immediate ability to to convey information to people, to have a discussion with people, to occasionally get off a good, you know, wise wise acre. Well, I don't want to say any curse words on that's, here. You can do whatever you want. Wise ass remark. There you go. You know, so. Um, yeah, it's a tool to communicate, which for people like me, you know, that's great because it's immediate and it's kind of fun to use because you don't have to think too deeply about 140 characters. But obviously there's a downside to it, which is, you know, rushing things out there which are not fully reported um, or even just, you know, look, I, my last year as a beat writer, as a team beat writer was the 04 Giants. So it was pre-Twitter. I watched these beat writers now, and we were trying to beat each other. I mean, obviously the internet existed then, so it wasn't like you were just trying to beat each other in the papers the next day, but it's still different with Twitter where you're literally trying to beat people by 10 seconds uh, for to, to, to post something. So, yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of negatives to it. I don't want to be a cranky old fart who says, you know, things were better in my day. Uh, uh, so, yeah, the only way to look at it is there's pros and cons, and if you use it correctly, it's fine. It's good. It's cool. It's fun, but... A lot of people, of course, uh, don't use it correctly. <laughs> no, I, I tell so one, one thing. One thing I find interesting about Twitter, though, is that it really shows when, when you see public figures, you know, athletes, celebrities get in trouble with what they tweet. It really, you know, I do like to think the journalists, uh, they don't have that training journalists do to know how careful you have to be before you share something publicly because they're not used to it. Like we kind of grew up in that culture where you you realize when you're sharing something publicly, you better know what you're doing. Yeah, there, there's a, there's a, maybe it's just me as someone who's not really, not at all in the sports media field. I, there's this weird segment now where everyone has to get a scoop. I mean, that's always been around, but this idea now that because Twitter is so quick and that everyone runs with it so quickly that you have other rival reporters acknowledging the other people and getting giving them credit publicly which just seems a bit odd to me but that is the way of life now yeah there's a lot even yeah it's interesting that even the crediting business itself you know we used to be um newspaper reporter if someone else had a scoop you'd credit you know espn or the new york times or whoever it was as as a as a media entity the current generation is much more likely to credit a person you know jay glazer just said this chris mortensen said this you know and I think that's part of the sort of culture of personal branding among journalists where people don't think of Jay Glazer as Fox. They think of Jay Glazer as Jay Glazer. So that's been interesting. But you're right. It's it's uh, but, the, you know, another problem with Twitter is, that, you know, people, a lot of people have made this observation because it's true. And sometimes it's just a media echo chamber. And we overestimate the amount of the general public who actually is paying attention to this stuff we put on Twitter. Uh, and we're sometimes we're just talking to ourselves. Yeah, no, exactly. Now, let me ask you this. As someone in the field, do you think it's a necessity to be on Twitter? Well, yeah, short answer is yes. I mean, you, you, yeah. I mean, for people like me, uh, well, certain, for beat writers, it's not even a qu question. Right. You have to. Uh, for someone like me, I mean, in theory, you could not do it, but it wouldn't be very practical. And our editors... Um, you know, they, it's, it's, it's essentially a requirement to be on Twitter, I suppose, but it's not as if they have some quota of tweets you have to do, but right. want to sort of participating in that world and our Twitter accounts are linked onto our website. So, I mean, short answer. Yeah. You got to be on Twitter, uh, how you use it and how often you use it obviously is a matter of personal preference, I suppose. 
What what do you miss about the pre-social media days? You know, particular Twitter as we're talking about. Uh, again, I, I don't want to sound like a, an old fart nostalgia for the old days, but I mean, it was a, it was a saner life. I mean, you could. <laughs> I I remember uh, when I was on the. This is very early in my days on the Giants beat, ninety four, ninety five. You know, we would. You know, the locker room. There'd be a gap between when the uh, coach spoke and when the locker room opened, like of three or four hours, and we'd go out to lunch, like instead of sitting there posting five stories about what happened in the morning and keeping up in real time, we'd literally just go out to lunch and come back and, you know, then listen to more and write because it didn't matter. The, you know, you had till 10 o'clock at night in theory to file something. So um, it, it really struck me how things had changed. That night Jeter broke his ankle in the ALCS. I remember thinking I, I did my, I did what I had to write uh, that night. I, I'm leaving the Yankee Stadium press box at 2.30 in the morning. Now, in the past, by then, people would have thrown up their hands and gone home and written about Jeter the next day for the next day's paper. But that press box was packed at 2.30 in the morning with people just filing stuff. So I miss the, uh, yeah, the saner lifestyle. The, 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 the Everything about it was kind of, and we were obviously competitive and intense and all that stuff, but the just the logistical aspect of it was much saner. So I, I miss that, but this is a much more interesting era, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would agree, and I agree with everything you said about the past. As someone in your position, I the smoother, more calm lifestyle seems more appealing, but the, the interest is completely understood. I, I mean, I, 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 I consider, you know, aside from the job security issues, I, I really consider myself fortunate to you know be old enough to remember a you know, older style of newspaper world and now to have lived through this transition and still have hopefully another 10 years or so, you know, of evolvement. But um, uh, so, yeah, if you factor out the, the problems with people getting laid off and all that kind of stuff, it's been a fascinating era to live through in, in media. Speaking of, uh, didn't even have this on the agenda, but this sort of came up on Twitter uh, a few minutes ago, actually, or about an hour ago, that you could see like with cuts to newspapers. I mean, the rumor is that the daily news may be cutting someone, a behemoth like Mike Lupica. I think that shows the changes in, in the industry. Yeah. Well, one thing, and this isn't about Mike and, and specifically just about general columnists as a, you know, it's interesting several years ago, we eliminated the existence of a general columnist job, which used to be the highest paid, the most prestigious position uh, in, in every sports department. The theory being that, you know, in this era, opinions are a dime a dozen because anybody with an internet connection can tell the world what they think, whereas what people need is information. So therefore, you know, would people rather have, let's say, in our case, Bob Glauber, who's a columnist, but he's an NFL-specific columnist who brings expertise to it versus just a general, you know, person who writes opinion pieces. And that role has been diminished. And I mean, I don't know, it's not as if I'm wishing it to happen to Lupica, but if, if that happened, that would be the most dramatic example of that yet, of course, because there was a time where he was the, you know, one of the the voice or one of the small handful of voices of sports and uh, media in New York. And now, you know, it's that whole role is just not what it used to be. Yeah, I mean, that is just a rumor, and uh, let me credit the person oh. where I saw this on Twitter, Joe Pompeo, I believe that's for a uh, reporter for uh, political well, media. Like, so like I said, it's actually, I mean, in our case, it's already happened. It happened like five or six years ago yeah. where, you know, talented columnists, uh, Sean Powell and John Ed Howard, and I guess Wally Matthews, too, at the time, I mean, those positions were just eliminated because they decided... I don't know what, well, nobody told me exactly what they decided. I assume it was a combination of saving money and also just deciding the 
that role is not what it used to be. And that's a great transition here for what we're going to go into, what I want to go into next here, that yes, the whole idea of what newspaper people used to be has drastically changed. Well, I should say news people has drastically changed now. We have blogs, we have podcasts. Now, you blogged for a few years for the for Newsday. Uh, when you first heard about the concept of a blog, did you ever think you would write one? It's funny. In, in February of 07, I went to visit Will Leach in Brooklyn to, to talk about this exotic new concept called a blog and Deadspin and what is this all about? And this is, you know, this strange new thing. And I remember him explaining to me the, about linking to other people's stuff, which seemed bizarre to me at the time. And uh, four months later, <laughs> in May of 07, I started a blog and uh, yeah, so initially I would not have thought I would do it, but then it turned out to be a fun and be a great outlet for, I remember the very first post I did. I talked to Steve Bornstein, the president of NFL Network at a, some event. I wrote a little newspaper story about it and I said, wow, there's a lot more material here that I got nowhere to put. So I literally did a 2000 word transcript of my interview with him and I posted it. That was my first post. So yeah, it was another outlet and it was, it was, you know, fun and Twitter is now kind of replace that in much smaller doses, I guess. But um, yeah, I did not envision me doing this stuff, but I think I've done a pretty good job for an old guy of transitioning to some of this new world. And, and you know, it's, like I said, there's pros and cons to all that stuff. I think you totally have. And just for everyone listening, we are talking on Skype here. So Neil has gone all over the <laughs> plateau of communication in uh, speaking to people and doing everything uh, through his field of work as well. Um, yeah, I, I downloaded Skype and got on this thing within five minutes. I was very proud of myself. I, I, guess, well, I, I, had, no, I had no Skype to do this interview within five minutes. That's, so for a 54-year-old, that's pretty good. That's talent. That is talent <laughs> right there. Uh, before we move on with the blog stuff, I just want to acknowledge, I mean, transitions in your career specifically. I mean, that being a beat reporter for St. John's and, like you said, the New York Giants until the year 2004, then becoming a columnist. Um, what, do you, what do you miss about the beat and what exactly don't you miss about the beat? Well, I mean, like I said, doing the beat in this era with Twitter would be tough. Uh, one thing, I, another thing I do not miss about the beat is, you know, being a beat writer means bonding with the players on some level. And as you get old enough to be their father, it becomes more difficult. I always, most sports I covered as a beat writer, I was always about 10 years older than the players. Now it's that gap has grown. So, um, and I don't miss being in locker rooms because no sports writer misses being in locker rooms. Um, uh, but I do miss the, the 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 regularity of it, the the being an expert an expert on one very specific area, building relationships with people there. I also miss the camaraderie of, even though we're competitors, the writers tend to you know there's a camaraderie there in the press room, particularly on the road where you go out with people. Uh, on the media beat, even though I've developed some professional friends in that area, like Richard Deitch and Sandemir, and you know some of these guys, I see John Uran from Sports Business Journal. It's it's not the same because with the beat writers, we literally live together for six months, and you some of my best friends in the business are people who, you know, were my competitors uh, on the on the beat. So I do miss that. So with the evolution of how we communicate the news, and with the different positions you've had. Has your writing process changed at all with all these different forums? Well, obviously, the yeah, I mean, the logistics of writing has changed because you know now I'm just bank. I'm often in a position where I want to bank something out as quickly as possible, just so they can post. If it's a newsy thing, of course, if I want to, sometimes I'm just cranking something out without worrying about style, just to get it posted. 
but the flip side of that is, you know, things like blogs also give you more freedom to be more creative than you would in the paper. So I, I guess the variety of types of writing I do has 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 grown with the variety of platforms to do it on. So. Uh, yeah, we're all over the place. I mean, it's like, I mean, like, I mean, well, Sunday night was a good, Sunday night's a good example of the changing world where, you know, that, that I was in Dallas for that game. It was a catastrophe for a sports writer on deadline to have a game. Oh, I could imagine. I mean, that's, that's, that's the ultimate catastrophe. But what's different is in the past, I would have cranked something horrible out for our last print edition, which is what I did. But then now we have the opportunity to come back again. So at one in the morning Eastern time, I'm filing a more coherent column, you know, my third column of the night on the same game. Um, so on the one hand, it's great that you can actually write something that's not embarrassing because you, at least for the website. On the other hand, it's a lot more work. So, I mean, you talk about uh, looking at different blogs and then communicating with people like Will Leach from Deadspin or formerly from Deadspin. Um, now, are there certain websites and blogs that you visit daily for creative ideas? You know, uh, my duties now are so all over the place. I and mean, we're actually de-emphasizing my media and business stuff a little bit for the next 10 years and having me do a little bit of everything. However, uh, in terms of the media and business stuff, it's, you know, Deadspin's evolved away from that a little bit, but the big lead still does a lot of that. Um, you know, Sports Business Journal obviously covers that whole world very thoroughly. Um you know, it's interesting. So one of the great things about Twitter, and I, I currently follow 15 people, which is, I realize, an insanely low number. And usually I don't go above 25 just to maintain my sanity. That makes you well, exclusive when you I, have a low no, number know, like that. No, I know it does. And and, some, and mostly it's good for my sanity. Sometimes, of course, I miss things. But that's why it's important. Like A guy like Richard Deitch from SI has been a great person for me to follow because he – seems to know everything that's going on simultaneously in the world. And therefore, if something important happens in the media business world, he'll link to it. So if you pick your spots for who to follow, you really can get away with a low number of follows. But usually I'm in the 20 to 25 range, depending on the season. But then I went down to zero during my vacation in August. And I've built it back up to 15. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I mean I'm not doing it to be like you know elitist or obnoxious or 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 naive or whatever. I'm doing it, like I said, to maintain my sanity. It, that's a completely valid answer, honestly. <laughs> I think there. I tell people about Twitter. I say it's like an onion. If you want to get to the good spots, you have to peel nine million different layers of Twitter to actually find the the good rational material. But because before that, you had people with agendas, people angry about something, people right. putting false information. I mean, it's you really have to pick your spots. Yeah, and and um, well, yeah, and people have made the point. I guess one of the problems Twitter has with getting more followers or you know more users is that people do get overwhelmed by that river of information. And I'm, I guess, I'm trying to uh, corral it. But you know, now that I'm doing a little bit of everything, I'll be doing the baseball playoffs, and you know, I do a lot of different things. So I, yeah, there's no question. That sometimes there's stuff that flies over my head just because of I just didn't see it, even though everybody else did. But I'll, I guess I'll take that bargain. Yeah, that's honestly that. Talking about sanity again, that will probably help you in that department <laughs> much, much better. Um, besides blogs and everything, do you listen to anything? I mean, podcast? Is it uh, a lot of sports radio? Is it just I – You know, I, I mean, I, I certainly pick my – I mean, I certainly listen to podcasts, but I've got to pick my spots again when someone points out something interesting. The Sports Talk Radio, 
I mean, in New York, it's, you know, it's a big part of my, Mike Francesa, people make fun of me for how often I write about Mike Francesa, and I tell them that uh, we try to write about what people are interested in, and there is nobody on our website, I don't care if it's A-Rod or Mello or Jeter or, or Eli or anybody who, who, who consistently generates page views the way that Mike Francesa stories do. So, um, yeah, I listen to a lot of New York sports talk radio because, um, you know, because I have to, I guess because it's a big thing for our readers, uh, you know, right or wrong, it, it is. So that's my number one listening thing, more so than podcasts. I am Brian from New Haven, and I call and antagonize Mike okay. all the time. So just so you <laughs> well, know. Well, you know, Prince, there's a lot of similarities between Francesca and Cosell, where, you know, it's one of those guys people love to hate, love to love, or love to hate, or a little of both, and it doesn't matter, because Mike's job is to get you to listen, not to get you to like him, and his ratings are still high. So before we get into Mike, because I got a few questions about that, let's with FAN. I mean, you were working during the birth of that idea, this new idea of a twenty-four-seven sports radio station. I mean, how do you think this changed the way that we? And obviously, it's gone all over the country. It's just not a New York thing. How do you think it's changed the way we, the the media, and well, I'm not the media, but you, the media, and we, the fans, have have, have look at sports now. I mean, really, well, yeah, I was living in Astoria, Queens, two blocks from their studio when they went on the air in July of uh, 87. I was listening then. I was covering high schools at the time. But um, yeah, I mean, to me, it's the it's really the first step in, in what we've seen evolve now with social media, because, you know, the athletes in 1987 were initially shocked at, at the fact that the fans were angrier and more negative and more cynical than the writers were because they'd never really heard directly from fans like that before. So in, in some ways, it made the athletes appreciate the journalists more once they heard what the fans were talking about when they called in. Uh, but that was, of course, the first step in, in you know, public sort of opinion or agendas shaping what edit, newspaper editors thought was important. And now it's evolved to an even more lunatic extreme because of Twitter. But at the time... We all we all used to gripe about editors deciding what we should be writing about based on what people were talking about on sports talk radio, and that still continues to this day. I could just imagine what a Yankee player after a bad day thought when they first heard someone like Jerome in Manhattan tell right. them exactly what they thought about their day and how they're playing for the Yankees. Yeah, that that was a completely new concept. I mean, other than someone yelling at you from the stands, the the only feedback players got in that era was what they read in the papers. So. Yeah, it was a new thing for them to deal with. And, and again, yeah, the first step in what's now become, obviously, players just accept that everybody's commenting on them every second of every day. Uh, so I'd obviously be amiss if I did not bring up the behemoth of the, well, before we get to that, but the behemoth. Basically, why FAN was FAN, and that was, of course, Mike and the Mad Dog. Uh, this is a very broad question, obviously, but what do you think made them a success for those 19 years? Well, as Mike himself has pointed out, well, first of all, they have the they had the chemistry and the contrasting personalities, and that was compelling. But you know, as Mike has said, they came along at, at the right time, where this this whole for, this format was new. And it was a pretty interesting era in New York sports, although I guess all eras are interesting in New York sports in their own way. And they really kind of rode that, you know, the 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 uh, you know the Yankee success of the '90s, and just they came along at the right time. Let's put it that way. But but also they did have and still do have on their occasional reunions this goofy chemistry together that really worked. And and uh, neither one of them is it's it's just not the same. Neither one of them is the same separate as they were together. And, 
yeah, they just everything went right for them. So, I mean, with all that being said, I mean, you've talked in the past about how your favorite piece was was the scoop about the 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 I don't want to say the word tragic. That might be a mellow, little <laughs> melodramatic, um, but the end of Mike and the Mad Dog. Uh, you know, without giving away too much information, obviously, I understand you have sources, but try to, you know, briefly walk us through that that late spring and summer when, you know, you started to realize the demise was inevitable. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if it was my favorite piece. Probably my, I guess it was my most important story. Okay, okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a very odd, it was very odd because, you know, I reported it, but it was not, it was kind of fuzzy. I mean, it was kind of like, yeah, unless something change, change of heart or at some point soon. And, you know, I, I, it was a weirdly written story for something of that magnitude. And, and it was actually, I appreciate my editors for letting us write it at all. Cause it was so, you know, fuzzy. And then for two months, that entire summer of 08, not one word was written by any of my competitors debunking it or or confirming it or acknowledging it in any way and i'm starting to think wow okay well i did feel a little better when francesa and russo both kind of addressed it on the air after i wrote it and i was starting to think okay I, I'm, I'm probably right here but it did take two months for it to actually happen and i i do admit there were times in the summer of 08 where i was like wow this this thing better happen or i'm gonna look like an idiot so that, that it was just a very odd it's very odd to have a, a story of that magnitude and not have your competitors either confirm it or or try to shoot it down. It was nothing. And then eventually, you know, they announced Chris was going to Sirius and that was it. <laughs> so. Yeah, that does not sound like a very fun position for two months uh, to be in. That is not a position I envy whatsoever because, yeah, I mean, if no one's talking about something, I mean, you're obviously going to start second-guessing yourself to, yeah. if this yeah. story even exists or if I'm just publishing false things. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was a big story and obviously I'm glad it was right, but it was an odd, it was a it was sort of an odd story, um, but well, it all worked out. <laughs> I mean, not that I was rooting for them to break up, no, but I while I was, well, once I wrote it, I was rooting for them to break up of course, <laughs> so that I'd be right. And you mentioned now they, they, they have their own shows, obviously, and things are different. And Francesco has been the host, the solo host of his own show, obviously, since 2008, and there's been ups and downs, and he has no problem telling us. He's he's still number one. He has no problem telling us that either. And to boot, I mean, he has a cult-like following with a name of Mongo Nation now. Now, are you familiar with Mongo Nation? Oh, of course, yeah. Um, now, let me ask you this. Did you ever think the sports update guy for Don Imus would one day have a nation to call his own, and they would have an annual festival to celebrate him? Um. Yeah, well, it's of course that's another strange thing that's happened in the world, but that makes the world more interesting. Um, well, speaking of Mongo Nation, I, you know, <laughs> a, a couple a week ago, two weeks ago, whenever the news that France, I guess last week when Francesca was leaving uh, the Fox simulcast finally and acknowledging what a disastrous uh, deal that was. Um, the story was broken by this guy, Eli is Elite, whose whose handle on Twitter is Sports Radio Mongo. And and he he had it. At midnight he said at 3 p.m. tomorrow, Mike Francesa will announce he's leaving Fox. Period. And I I couldn't confirm it, so I didn't even retweet it. And sure enough, at three o'clock the next day, Francesa gets on the air. I am leaving Fox. Amicable divorce. We're done. So I do a tweet saying, you know, Francesa just said he's leaving Fox as first reported by Sports Radio Mongo last night. And people, 
because I felt, well, why not? He got it exactly right. I'm going to credit him like I would the New York Times. But of course, as many people noted correctly, this is a bizarre new world where one of these fans, uh, who's, but who's a clued in kind of fan, he, you know, he posted it on Twitter. So I credit him like I would any journalist. So it's a very strange new world. Sports Radio Mongo is a big fan of the Red Ticket Blues podcast. He's a very good guy. Yeah, um, he's, and yeah, that, but that's why when I saw it, it wasn't just some random guy. I was like, okay, if this guy's posting it, I, you know, I trust that he knows something about what he's talking about. But the fact that I'm crediting him, which, again, I had no problem doing, it's still, you know, if you're an old-fashioned journalist and you see that, you're like, wow, this world has completely gone off the rails. Yeah, I did see the reactions to when you gave that <laughs> to people. Were like, what kind of world is this? What right, a day to I, be and alive. I was, and I was thinking, right, and I was thinking the same thing. But, go, oh, yeah, I, hey, good for him. He, he was right. He had the exact time that he would announce it. <laughs> that was pretty good. Like I, when I reported Francesca and Russo were breaking up, I didn't say they will do it at 2 p.m. on August 21st, you know. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> it was quite exact. Uh, where do you think Mike goes from here? And with a simulcast uh, angle. You know, I, I think that until he got out of the Fox deal, and presumably he'll have a new deal, maybe with MSG soon, uh, I thought he was going to keep trying to get out of his contract before it was over because he was so unhappy. I think the resolution of the simulcast thing makes it more likely he will play out his contract till the end of 2017. After that, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he resigns, but everybody in Nelson the business thinks I'm naive and silly, and of course he'll resign. But I think I, I really do think by the end of 2017 he'll be ready to whatever do a tv show for msg for a couple hours a day or just something different but i've but i've been wrong before <laughs> uh just quickly moving to the side there just staying with fox i mean colin cowherd is now the 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 big name or well he not the big name he had people have, they have people like jim rome and whatnot but cowherd is sort of taking over that spot a little bit on fox where mike had the simulcast two different styles there uh, do you think Cowherd's style will play well at Fox as he had his issues at ESPN? Yeah, I mean, I like him. I, I don't like his new hair, but I, I do like his uh, – <laughs> I like him. I liked him as a radio host. I like him as a radio host uh, when he was uh, – because he's – yeah, sometimes he says crazy stuff, but he's willing to take chances and make interesting points and be a little different than, you know, who should be the backup guard for Alabama this week or who should be the Yankees' fifth starter you know, so I kind of like that he's not doing just sort of Joe Sixpack kind of sports talk, even though he sometimes, you know, goes off the rails a little bit. But I, so yeah, I kind of, I, I find him interesting. Let's put it that way. Now you mentioned, uh, yeah, I mean, Colin Cowherd, we, we bring up sports radio, Mongo. This was a, he would, just like he always tweets quotes from the Francesa show, would always tweet uh, quotes from Cowherd. And I never listened to him. And Eventually, seeing something over and over again, you check it out. And, and Cowherd's style is different. It's very different from a lot of people yeah. who do sports talk radio. So I, I have – I mean I don't agree with everything he says. But that, like he said with Francesa, that's part of the beauty of it. You want to hear what they're going to say regardless if you agree with it or not. Yeah, I mean I look, I have nothing against – I have nothing against guys like you know Benigno and Roberts, for example, who are extremely well-informed sports fans who – you know, keep it to sports and in a very, uh, you know, detailed way. And there's nothing wrong with that. Just as a, as an old guy who doesn't follow any particular team as a fan at this stage. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to hear something out of the box, like a guy like Coward does. Um, so let's say Mike does leave in February, 2017. Let's say he goes on his way, wherever it may be. Uh, I wouldn't even know where it would be, but with that being said, 
Could anyone take over that spot? Well, it's it's, it's, it's the end of 2017, not not February. Oh, I'm so sorry. Got, got, yeah, so we got a ways to go here. But, um, uh, you know, I, I believe that Mark Chernoff is likely to give the midday team of Benigno and Roberts a shot at that spot, assuming Joe wants to keep working that long. Um yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he wants to give them that chance, but if some more creative option comes along, I guess I guess he'd have to consider it. But I, I don't know. Right now, they're just, even though the company and Mike obviously have been at odds, I think the company just wants to keep Mike around because it's so they don't have to deal with that question. So you'd put maybe give them a spot there. Do you think the standalone solo host like Francesa on WFAN in Drive Time? Do you think that that the idea of him, do you think that's a dying breed? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be very hard for them to give us, yeah, especially if it's going to be five and a half hours. Yeah. I, I think it would be very hard for them to give anybody that on a solo basis. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons Mike never got a partner, among others, is the money. I mean, he, he's paid so much, it's hard to pay a second person. Now, obviously, whoever replaces him is going to be paid a lot less, and, you know, it becomes more affordable to have two people. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be two. I don't know what two. Okay, so keeping Mike in mind there, the biggest question that I think New York sports radio people have, and I realize most people are not optimistic, it's sort of a pipe dream, what are the chances Mike and Chris get back together? I mean, you know, there's a lot of problems with it, the biggest one probably being money, because whoever hired him would have to pay two of them. Uh, you know, they, my impression is they've never hated each other personally. They just got sick of each other professionally. So therefore, there's no impediment to them working together in some form, you know, on a personal level. The question is where and how and when. So, yeah, it would not shock me if they're both kind of trying to ease out of the daily grind if they have some thing where they appear at, like they do a weekly show together on some cable TV channel or something. I, I would not rule that out at all. But in terms of like a full time radio five hour gig together, it's it's really hard because partly because of the money and partly because of just I don't know where you put them. Neil, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. This was a – it was truly an honor to have you here. But before you go, I have to play us out. I have three quick questions for you, all right? I'll try to answer in short and quickly. <laughs> um, well, it doesn't have to be that quick, but just three, right. three questions. Um, what is the worst advice you've ever received? Um, probably when I was an undergrad when I was told to go to law school. <laughs> and, I didn't, and I didn't do it. So I guess that's – I guess that's that's a – that's good that I didn't do it. I think you've done all right for yourself. Um, do you think Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone? Uh, you know, some friends of mine were in Dealey Plaza when we were, you know, down, down there for the uh, for the uh, game on Sunday, but I didn't go. I was back there in the mid-'80s when Dallas was still in denial, and they didn't even have so much as a plaque there, let alone a museum. Anyway, uh, yes, I do. Okay, that's fair enough. And the final question, will you be at Francesacon this year? Uh, you know, I think probably no, if oh. I go, it, no, if I go, it would be just as to kind of observe the scene uh, like uh, on my own, but it was really good that we sent Laura Albanese and case uh, we, Laura Albanese did the story last year and, and it was much better to have her there than me because it was just a different dynamic and she's there with all these young guys and they're having fun with it and she could, you know, it, it was a good vibe there from what I read. I wasn't there. Um, short answer. I I'm not planning to cover it, but it's possible I would go just to see the spectacle from my own eyes.
I was there last year. It was unlike anything I could possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah, no, it seemed like it, but I, I, I don't think I'm the right person to cover it. But yeah, maybe I should go and have a beer and just kind of join the crowd. You know, if you go, beer on me. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Neil Best, everyone. He works for Newsday. He's a sports columnist. You can follow him on Twitter at SportsWatch. Neil, thank you very much. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. That was Neil Best of Newsday. Uh, it was a lot of fun to do. I appreciate him coming on. I, I hope you all enjoyed it. Got a little sneak peek into the daily life of someone involved in different forms of sports media, sports writing, and how the times have changed and will continue to change. And a little sneak peek also into the world of sports radio and future of WFAN. Uh, again, you can follow Neil on Twitter at SportsWatch. And remember, you can follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 and at RedTicketBlues. And you can always listen to the show on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and YouTube. Like us on Facebook. And remember to leave a review. And if you don't want to leave a review because you're too lazy, then just at least you know hit the stars. It, it, it's much appreciated. So with all that being said, I'm out of here.